All right, good morning, beloved. Great to see everyone this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, as we are continuing in our series, Growing in Grace, a verse-by-verse study of Peter's second epistle. Today we have yet another wonderful section of scripture before us as we'll be looking at the assurance of our salvation the assurance of our salvation a very important topic that i know all of us have probably struggled with at one time or another however peter wants to make certain that you confirm your calling and election if indeed you are in christ jesus and so our focus today will be on verses 5 through seven primarily, as he begins to introduce this topic to us, but so we can get the full context of this entire section, I do want to read down to verse 11 this morning. Okay, so let's start by reading 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 5. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Here are now the words of the living and true God. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Amen. You can see that these are some really good verses, huh? The... Doctrine of our eternal security in Christ, or I'm sometimes referred to as the perseverance of the saints, is the spirit-revealed truth that our salvation is forever. That once saved, you're always saved. It's not your salvation to lose. And this is a teaching all throughout our scriptures. But many who profess Jesus Christ struggle to experience the peace of this joy and assurance in our salvation. And it's terrible, really, to think about just how many Christians there are who do not enjoy the assurance of their salvation. It's particularly sad because God wants us to have a full assurance. So he says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, he wants us to know, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, that we are of the truth and to have our hearts assured. He wants us, according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, our hearts to be encouraged and to attain all the wealth that comes from the full assurance. According to Isaiah chapter 32, In verse 17, the work of righteousness should result in peace and a quiet confidence forever. Every true believer should rejoice in the assurance of their salvation. Not to have that assurance is to live in doubt, is to live in fear, is to live in almost a spiritual depression And it means you're unable to delight in God or the gift of his salvation. You're unable to enjoy the anticipation of all of his promises, the exhilaration of the blessed hope 
which is inherent to God's grace. You see, the promise of eternal life presupposes assurance. And if I'm going to enjoy all that is mine in Christ, I have to know that I'm in Christ. And with the rise of these false teachers that Peter is concerned with, that his readers will, that he's writing to these readers about, he wants them to confirm their calling and election in order to stand firm in that assurance. And so this becomes one of the main themes in this very brief epistle. Now before we get into um, the text, let me remind you briefly of how this whole book fits together. Peter's epistle is broken up into three chapters, and the dominant theme is found right in the middle in chapter 2, in the focus of these false teachers who he describes in clear and graphic details that we outlined in week one. In other words, kind of chapters one and three are bookends that are related to that theme in that they tell the believer how to be equipped to deal with these false teachers that will arise. Now, there are basically three defenses that Peter's going to highlight for us throughout this letter. And this is kind of how I divided up the book to teach it. Defense number one, know your salvation. Know you're saved. The believer must have an accurate, true, saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must know the truth in order to stand with the truth. And this is Peter's focus in the first 11 verses of chapter 1. Know your salvation. That leads us to defense number two, know your scripture. We must know our scripture if we're going to defend ourselves against these false teachers. False teachers are always trying to distort the purity of the gospel. That's, that's what they're after. The person and the finished work of Christ. They can change that just a little bit, either of them, the person of Christ or the work of Christ. They'll have achieved their purpose. False teachers will always distort one or both of those things. And then defense number three, know your sanctification. If you know you're set apart unto God from sin, and if you know the scriptures, and if you know you're saved, you're eternally a child of God, then the attacks of false teachers are thwarted. You're securing your salvation. You know the scriptures. You're set apart for Christ. If you don't know that you're eternally saved, and if you don't know the scriptures, and if you don't know you are in a continual state of sanctification, then you become a ready victim for false teaching. Now, we've been looking at that first section, Know Your Salvation, which is an essential defense against false teachers. If you have on the helmet of salvation, then the fiery darts and blows of Satan that come against you that make you want to doubt your salvation and doubt the finished work of God, they are thwarted. And you will be protected from false teachers. That's why it's the first line of defense. You must know your salvation. That's what Peter's been focusing on in these first four verses we've covered thus far in chapter 1. Just by way of quick review, in verse 1, he showed us the source of our salvation to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 2, he showed us the substance of our salvation. It's predicated on grace and peace in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then in verses 3 and 4, you must know the sufficiency of your salvation as he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And now, in verses 5 to 11, Peter says, um, I want you to know the certainty of your salvation. The certainty of your salvation. He wants you to be certain that, in fact, you are saved. And why is this so important, you ask? Well, because false teachers will always try to tell you another way of what? Salvation. 
But if I know where I stand in terms of my salvation, then there's no attraction from false teacher. And so Peter says in verses 1 through 4 that we have received the faith by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, it was by His grace that we can now have peace with God. And through that grace, He has given us a true and saving knowledge of Jesus our Lord. In verse 3, He called us by His own glory and excellence. He changed my life by His divine power and how has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And yet, in verse 5, He says, For this very reason also, Applying all diligence in your faith. Supply moral excellence. Now that's quite a paradox, isn't it? In verses 3 and 4 he says, we have everything we need in Christ. And then in verse 5 he says, now you apply all diligence. You better apply diligence. How can you add anything to everything? Well, when we're talking about our salvation, you can't. And so we must be very careful when we approach verses like this. To be clear, the gospel itself doesn't ask us to do anything. It first of all announces to us what God has done for us. That's what's first. Before anything else happens. It's what God has done for us. See, the gospel isn't, what would Jesus do? Now you go and do that. The gospel is, what has Jesus done? Now believe that. One of the very essentials of the gospel message out of the gate is to show that man, as he is by nature, cannot do anything good. It's the doctrine of depravity. It's scriptures like Ephesians 2.1 which declare, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Or a few verses later, Ephesians 2.3, which says, We were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. Isaiah 64.6 tells us we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The first essential of the gospel proclamation is that there is none who are righteous, no, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The gospel isn't a proclamation of moral excellence then equals God's grace. That's a works-based foundation. Before man is called to do anything, he must have first received something. And that's what we saw back in verse 1. We first receive this like precious faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. According to Romans chapter 3, verse 24, our salvation is further described as being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It's not within ourselves. So again, just as Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This, this faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We got a lot of boastful people out there talking about their salvation. And so since we have received this glorious salvation. And seeing, verse 3, that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And because He has called us by His own glory and excellence, and has granted to us, verse 4, His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature for this 
very reason also, Peter says. In other words, because of all that is yours in Christ. Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Verse 5 then calls for our diligent effort. Now that gets us into the text today, but what I'd like to do is take this theme of assurance and break it down into four sections for you over the next couple of weeks, and you'll see these outlined in your bulletin notes, and we're just going to kind of work through these one section at a time. Number one is the effort prescribed. Number two, the virtues pursued. Number three, the options presented. And number four, the benefits that are promised. And so we start this morning with number one and the effort prescribed, the effort prescribed. We just read it in verse five. And might I add as kind of a footnote here before we start, you would think after what Peter just told us in verses three and four, after all of these precious and magnificent promises of ours, after granting to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, after pouring his divine power into us, wouldn't you think that verse 5 might start with, so let go and let God, right? That the next statement might be, hey, relax, kick back, God's got it. Nope, just the opposite. <laughs> Notice verse 5 again. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith. Now, there's the effort right there prescribed. Because of God's saving work in us and because of its complete sufficiency, it's kind of like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your own what? Salvation. Work out your own salvation. God put it in, now you're going to work out that faith. Work it out so it's seen, so it's visible. Manifest that faith. And that's what Peter is saying here. Applying all diligence in your faith. And then the next word, supply moral excellence. The construction of this verse in the Greek is, is incredibly interesting. Let me take you into this verse a little deeper as we, we look at each section. What does he mean applying all diligence in your faith. What does that word applying mean? Well, the ESV and NIV do a pretty good job of capturing it. They both say, make every effort. It's the idea of making maximum effort. It's defined as supplying maximum, supplying maximum effort, however, alongside someone else. God has done all of this. Now you bring alongside every effort. That's the word applying. Then there's all diligence. It's the Greek word spude, and it's sometimes translated earnestly. It means like with zeal and with eagerness. It's the idea of having a sense of urgency. It's actually a very strong word that we can't see in our English language, but very strong. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 a couple times as he tells the um, gifted Corinthian church, about the gracious sacrificial giving the churches in Macedonia gave with. That though they were under the severe affliction and were without, they gave beyond their means, he says, to those who were in need in the churches in Jerusalem. Paul says in verse 2, the, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty had overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part paul says in verse four they begged us earnestly spude with zeal and eagerness with a sense of urgency for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints and then he says to them in verse seven but as you excel in everything the corinthians they were a very gifted church but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, the disciples, see that you excel in this grace also. Be as these churches were. 
And you see, this is kind of the same idea that Peter's portraying to us here. God's divine power has granted to us everything you need in life and godliness. Everything. You're very rich. He has made all these precious and magnificent promises to you. You are highly favored, richly blessed. Therefore, for this very reason, you need to apply every effort also. And in your faith, supply moral excellence, you see? But what does that word supply or supplement mean? It means to give lavishly or to richly supply all your needs. It's actually a rather strange word on how it got its meaning. The NIV actually really misses the translation here. They, they translate it, make every effort to add to your faith. And in my humble opinion, that's really not a helpful translation because this word supply actually comes from the noun um, Korogoi, it's where we get the word choir I'm from. But the noun actually means a choir master. And you think, how could you translate a word that means choir master into the word supply? Well, because in Greco-Roman times, the choir master had the responsibility to supply everything that was needed for the choir to perform in these large-scale plays. And in the great days of Athens, there were these public-spirited citizens who volunteered and took on these duties at their own expense, collecting materials, maintaining and training and equipping these choruses, these large choruses. And so the word came to mean a supplier, someone who supplied. Theologian William Barclay was helpful in his word study of this. He writes the following about this word, um, corgoy. It never means to equip in a sparing way. It means lavishly and Willingly to pour out everything that is necessary for a noble performance. When the word went out into the larger world, it grew to mean not only to equip a chorus, but to be responsible for any kind of equipping. It could mean to equip an army with all of its necessary provisions and supplies. It could mean to equip the soul with all the necessary virtues for life. But always at the root of it, there was always the idea of willing, lavish generosity in the equipping. And so this is the word that the Spirit of God chooses to give here to Peter. And so look again at verse 5, and Peter's instruction for us. He says, for this very reason also, because of all that Christ has done for you, applying all diligence in your faith, because of God's saving work in us, because of the complete sufficiency we have in Christ, apply all diligence in your faith. Now our faith is already assumed here. We received it, you'll remember, back in verse 1. Faith is the ground in which these flowers of sanctification are going to grow in. God puts the faith in, and now he's requiring you work out that faith. It's a living faith, an active faith. Not, we're not passive in our sanctification. We have to pick up our Bibles and read it. We work it out. And so that's number one, the effort prescribed, apply all diligence in your faith. Next, number two, I want you to notice the virtues pursued. These are a list of virtues that Peter says he wants us to pursue. What does a believer need to pursue in his or her life to bring about this assurance that God wants us to have in our salvation? Verse 5 continues with a list of seven virtues which should be a part of every believer's life as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter continues there in verse 5. He says, In your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. So there's seven virtues to be pursued. And I think you'll be very refreshed and edified as you see what Peter's building up to here as we go through these. So let's look at them. The first one in verse 5 is listed in the New American Standard Bible as moral excellence. It's the Greek word arete. 
which means exactly as it's translated, moral excellence, or it can mean virtue. Same thing. And it, and it refers to one's integrity. It was used in classical time, um, Greco times, to mean a God-given ability to perform heroic deeds. It was attached to heroic deeds, but it came to mean the quality of someone's life. It's actually very seldomly used in scripture, but not in secular Greek. It's, it's used a lot there. But it's a term of moral excellence, but it could also mean the excellent quality of something. For example, a knife was said to be arete if it cut well. A horse was arete if it ran fast. A singer was arete if they could sing well. But however, it was used, when it was used, it always meant as an operative virtue. It, it was never worked out in a vacuum. It was always worked out and seen by people. It was a virtue that was evident in the person's life. It was a virtue demonstrated for the world to see. And so we stand out from the world having escaped the corruption, verse tells us, that is in it because of its sinful desires. And so Peter says, applying all diligence in your faith, with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, apply with great effort, with eagerness and zeal, moral excellence through your life. Now let me ask you a simple question. Where do we find the model of this moral excellence? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That's why in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, you have this monumental statement by the Apostle Paul as he lays down the pattern for believers' behavior. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And what he was saying was, I'm pursuing Christ. He admits before this in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this, for I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead. Paul, though he's locked up in prison, pressed on that he may lay hold of Christ. Moral excellence in Paul's life meant the constant pursuit of his Lord. Remember, he was the man who said, for me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Either way, I win the prize, which is Christ. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonian church, instructs them in chapter 4 on a life that's pleasing to God. He writes, and finally, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more and more. And then Paul goes on to tell them, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And like Peter, he instructs them to live a life that the world would see as holy and virtuous and of moral excellence. And so Peter says, in your faith, supply that. Supply moral excellence and virtue, demonstrating your faith for the world to see Christ. Well, that leads us to the second of these virtues. And in verse 5, it says, and in your moral excellence knowledge... This is a discerning knowledge, for at the heart of moral excellence is a true knowledge of Christ. This is the word gnosis, not the epi in front of it that we've spent a lot of time on before. This is gnosis without the epi. The epi intensifies it. This uh, rather refers to discernment and spiritual insight, that kind of knowledge. And it speaks specifically, again, to a right or correct knowledge 
correct insight of God. We must have a, a rightful understanding of truth and, and, and properly um, comprehend it, properly understand it, properly apply God's word to our life. We must rightly understand how we are to conduct ourselves before we can conduct ourselves in any kind of a moral way. Moral excellence is dependent on gnosis. And this, of course, course, involves the the diligent study of the Word of God. This is the pursuit of truth. Because I need to know what is the path that will glorify God. I need to grow in my knowledge and in practical application as I'm learning from the truth of God's Word and why we constantly encourage you to be participants within um, Bible studies and, and joining together in the, in the wisdom and in the opening of God's Word. There's something really special about it. And you can pour into my life and show me something I can't see in a unique way and, and God can use me to pour into your life and, and something maybe you haven't seen before. But this knowledge, you know, it doesn't just stay in my head. It's working its way out in my life. I fear for so many people in the church today, they think knowledge is the end goal. If I just learn all the doctrines, man, I'll be okay. No, no, you won't. Knowledge better be leading me into a closer communion with God. It better be changing how I love my wife how I pray for my enemies. Better be leading me to a life that's learning how to live in a way that glorifies and pleases God. I want to walk the way that that Christ walked. So I'm begging you, don't let a bunch of head knowledge just pile up up there and, and not get into your heart down here where it has the power to actually change your life and bring you into a right relationship, a more intimate relationship with Christ. The church really has to be on guard for this. I I really can't help but wonder how many people will miss heaven by about, you know, 18 inches because they never truly knew the Lord. They knew about Him, but they did not know Him. And tragically, Jesus will declare on that final day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. We were, we were never in a relationship. You knew a lot of stuff about me, but I never knew you. I didn't know you. Well, in verse 6, Peter continues, and, and flowing from knowledge, he says, is self-control. Self-control. The, the word literally means in the Greek, holding oneself in. And in Peter's days, it was used with um, exercise and training um, in relation to athletics, the Olympics. Athletes practice means of self-control in terms of self-restraint and discipline. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 how he disciplined his body into submission like that of a fighter so he would not become disqualified from preaching. The Olympic runner would abstain from unhealthy foods, wine, from sexual indulgences to keep themselves disciplined and training for the sake of their athletic achievements. Here it speaks to controlling our own flesh, our passions, our our sinful desires, rather than allowing yourself to be controlled by them, to be controlled by those passions and those lusts. And so he says, pursue moral excellence, realizing that at the heart of moral excellence is true knowledge, and that at the heart of knowledge is self-control. And by the way, just as a footnote, the, the false teachers typically claimed that their secret knowledge had freed them for the need of self-control. We'll, we'll see about this in the second chapter. They preached a, a license to indulge, that we're, we're free, and, and obviously God can't be that mad. We're still alive and able to do what, whatever we want. They were greedy, they were exploiters of people, they followed after their own lust, and they restrained nothing. And Peter will say all of that in chapters 2 and 3. But here, once you read the the full book and study, you see Peter's reversing all of this. 
he's combating this false teaching right here in this list. Because this goes against everything the false teachers will try to perverse the gospel with. And he says, any theology that divorces faith from its conduct is heresy. It's heresy. Trample foot the blood of, of Christ. Self-control has to be one of the greatest of all the Christian virtues and is the least respected of all the fruits of the Spirit. The fourth virtue is found in the second half of verse 6. Peter says, and in your self-control, perseverance. It's the word hupomone in the Greek. Hupomone. A better translation for it might be the word endurance. This word hupomone really does resist a, a one-word definition. There's not really a good English equivalent to it. It means never giving up in temptation, never giving up to trial, never giving up to difficulty, never giving in to sin. Hupomone, it means standing firm under fire, uh, persevering, enduring. This is uh, really becoming a, a, just a magnificent portrait of what we are to pursue, you see. We're to pursue a life of moral excellence based upon our spiritual discernment, which produces in us self-control, which equips us with endurance as we withstand the temptations of this world. And by the way, this world, hupomone, when it's used in Scripture, it often refers to someone's toil that they're going through. It's sometimes, uh, it's something that, that makes their life extremely difficult and, and painful. Um, it even brings along the thought of death in some of the references. It's used in classical Greek of those um, same sort of things. It's also used in reference to the Maccabees and their um, spiritual, uh, spiritual staying power, enabling men to die in their faith for God as they did in the Maccabean revolution. It's that spiritual staying power that will die before it gives in. That strong, that, that resiliency and again, I want to quote from theologian William Barclay, who does an excellent job with this word. He writes, quote, And now we can see the essence and the characteristic of this great virtue, hupomoe. It is not the patience which can sit down and bow its head and let things descend upon it and passively endure until the storm is past. It is not, as is in Scott's wording, merely falling things, it is the spirit that can bear things, not simply with resignation, but with blazing hope. It is not the spirit which sit, sits statically enduring in one place, but the spirit which bears things because it knows that these are the things leading to a goal of glory. It is not the patience which grimly waits for the end, but the patience which radiantly hopes for the dawn. Barclay says this word, hupomone, does not simply accept and endure, there is always a forward look in it. It is said of Jesus from Hebrews 12 too, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That's hupomone, he says. Christian steadfastness. It's the courageous acceptance of everything that life can do to us and the transforming of even the worst event into another step on the upward way. End quote. I really like that. At the heart of our spiritual pursuit is virtue number five, godliness. Godliness. Notice at the end of verse six, Peter says, and in your perseverance, godliness. What a magnificent word this is. Uh, we saw it back in um, verse three, Eusebia. Beautiful sounding word that I can pronounce, Eusebia. Speaks of our reverence for God, our devotion for God. Is very close and overlaps with holiness. It refers to a practical awareness and reverence of God in every area of life. It actually used to be translated true religion. <laughs> but it has in its meaning the reality of an authentic um, heart posture of worship to God. That's what's trying to capture in this word. The Greeks used to say that a man was, you say, be a lover of the gods. It's a word to describe someone who worships, who has reverence 
and who adores the one true God. In fact, Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, contrasts this word idolatria with Eusebia. Idolatria is idolatry. And he compares it with Eusebia, which means reverence and devotion. It sees God in his rightful place and, and worships God the way that he ought to be worshipped. Idolatry does the opposite. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7 through 8, Paul says, having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, rather train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness. The believer is to worship God, love God, to adore God, not just with music and stained glass, but with a life of, of reverence for God and devotion to His holy will. He's to do what David said in Psalm 16, set the Lord always before me. This is to be our commitment, beloved. False teachers are irreverent, irreligious, and ungodly. True Christians pursue practical awareness of God in every little detail of their life. They are characterized by deep reverence for God, which leads to courageous steadfastness, joyful self-control under temptation, built on knowledge and spiritual discernment in the pursuit of moral excellence. You see the fabric Peter is starting to weave together. It's beautiful, beautiful. That leads us to the sixth virtue in verse 7. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. We know this word, Philadelphia, brother love. It means affection, friendship, love, mutual sacrifice for one another. The heart of godliness, the heart of reverencing God, beloved, is to love one another. In fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 puts it in this way. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So if you are a true worshiper, or if you really are uh, Eusebia, godly and, and reverent, then you will demonstrate brotherly love towards one another. See, those two are inseparably linked. God and love for his people. You can't separate that. Our love for God and our love for neighbor are woven together eternally. A lawyer one time, of course, asked Jesus, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus said, depend the all the law and the prophets. They are inseparable. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first half of the commandments are how to love God, and the second half of the commandments are how to love your neighbor. Well, the crowning element flows from the seventh and final virtue that we find at the end of verse 7. Peter says, And in your brotherly kindness, love. This is the familiar word of love, agape. It is the highest on the ladder of virtues. Agape is sacrificial, um, selfless love. This is the love of the will, not the love of emotion. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the Apostle Paul said, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. In John 13, you'll remember our, our time there, Jesus raised the bar of what our love for one another should look like. He said, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. 
he says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Not as you love yourself, as much as I have loved you. How far and why did Jesus love you? Well, in what ways did he love? He loved you totally, completely, sacrificially, unselfishly, and eternally. And the reason we are now to possess this kind of agape love for one another is he said, for this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a means of evangelism for you to be known as a disciple of Christ, of how well you love one another. That's how they'll know. That's how they'll know. At the heart of my love toward my brother is the love of Christ shed abroad in my heart. As we have just seen, Scripture frequently commends love as one of the primary fruits of the Spirit. And like all the other virtues, the source of love is found in God himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Later on, the Apostle John reminds us that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, God's love is, is made to manifest to us in Christ. And when God abides in us, when he abides in us, he transforms our hearts and our minds and our desires so that now we can share that same love with those around us. So much more that could be said about that, but as we finish up and we just kind of look back over these verses, what do we see? Well, we begin with our salvation in verse 1, having received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3, his divine power has been granted to you. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have been called by his own glory and excellence. Verse 4, there's more. Through these is granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. Amazing. And God has done all of that for you but then in verse 5 he kind of surprises us he says for this very reason also in other words because of god's saving work in you because of our complete sufficiency we have in christ apply all diligence in your faith and that's where we started because faith is the ground in which all these flowers of sanctification are growing God puts the faith in, and now he requires to work out your faith. Faith without works is dead. It's a living faith. We're not passive in this. We work it out. And so here, Peter says, with maximum effort, pursue moral virtue with practical wisdom and internal self-control, endurance in all temptations, with a holy reverence, with brotherly affection, and in all persuasive, pure love for God and for everyone else. I think there's enough here to keep us occupied, don't you? Well, as we close, Peter says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten 
is purification from his former sins. Wow. What's he saying? He's saying, if these things are in your life and increasing, you're going to be fruitful. You're going to be fruitful. And you're not going to forget whether or not you've been saved. Why? Because it's an everyday part of your life. In other words, you're going to enjoy the assurance of your salvation. God doesn't want to take away your insurance. Your assurance. He wants you to enjoy it. God doesn't want you to be miserable and doubting and in fear. God wants to make you joyful, fruitful, and confident in your salvation. God doesn't want you to question whether or not you're going to make it to heaven. God wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, looking for our blessed hope and the peering of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the way to experience that is not to let go and let God but to follow these qualities, Peter says, as they render you neither useless nor unfruitful, but in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's saying where these things are realities in your life, there is a confidence in your salvation. And when these false teachers come along, they have nothing to offer you. For knowledge, they want to give you blindness. For self-control, they want to give you license to sin. For enduring and temptation, they want you to succumb to temptation. For reverence for God, they want to give you irreverence. For the love of God's children, they want to give you resentment towards God's kids. For true love, they want you to lust. But they're not going to be a problem to you if you experience these things in increased measure. Well, we made it through two points. We're going to have to wait until the next time. We'll finish the final two. And, and uh, wow, it's going to be a powerful conclusion that this text has. I can't wait to share it with you. If you are in need of prayer this morning, um, we'd be happy to pray with you. If you'd like to stay after um, and, and pray instead, we can certainly do that. But at this time, I want to invite everyone to please stand as we praise our Lord one more time. I will rise.